And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro John Let's Go podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have a disaster film, also a documentary of the events that happened in the year <laughs> 2012. Of course, that was the year when the entire world ended as predicted by apparently the Mayans, but also Roland Emmerich. Coincided with the release of this movie, bizarrely. But first we have to talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Well, we start off with a movie that already has a bit of a history on this podcast. It is Cirque de Freak, the Vampire's Assistant. Which is, of course, if you recall, first discussed here in episode 15. It is when Harley and I learned of Jean's vicious hatred for Josh Hutchison hmm. and became, against our will, the anti-Josh Hutchison podcast. His one-sided vendetta against a person who doesn't know he exists. This is a young adult supernatural adventure directed by Paul White. It's loosely based on the first three books of The Saga of Darren Shan, written by Darren O'Shaughnessy under a pseudonym, the pseudonym Darren Shan. But it follows a teenager named Darren Shan. He's played by Christmas Oglia. He's introduced to a world of quote-unquote freaks, you know, sort of these supernatural creatures and people with abilities, stuff like that. And he becomes a half-vampire as the apprentice to a vampire named Larton Krepsley, played by John C. Riley, who works at Carnival. And he discovers there that he is prophesied as being at the centre of a vampire war alongside his friend-turned-enemy Steve, played by John's much-despised Josh Hutchison. This desperately needed to be a TV show. Mm, yeah. It is kind of insane how much exposition they try and dump into this thing. There is just so much history and lore, numerous characters running around the place, multiple random unexplained things that clearly have some point of origin in the books but are not contextualised at all here. There are actually a half hour of deleted scenes on the disc and it helps but it still can't breathe. Although I will say that there are some deleted scenes that I think would have helped John in staving off his hatred of Josh Hutchison because I do think if I recall one of the reasons that John disliked him so much was that the the character he found very unlikable and John of course being unable to differentiate fiction from reality took that dislike and applied it to the actor. <laughs> it's the character of Peter in the Hunger Games. The fact that he can do all of that cake art and shit is completely pointless to the place he lives. 
is a pointless well, they traffic those cakes to the capital. You were talking um, to Insert the Freak about you didn't like his character there either, but... Oh yeah, it's probably deleted scenes would have helped. There are a lot of stuff in the deleted scenes that would have helped with that. Um, I mean, that sort of show why he... I mean, he wants to become a vampire, and he kind of resents that Darren has become a vampire or a half-vampire instead. And you see a lot of, like, where that's coming from, that he comes from an abusive home, and basically his only friend is Darren, and then Darren's gone off to be this half-vampire. I do think that the core thing of it here, the core plot, the core narrative, the core idea is compelling. It's good bones to build on. I mean, I'm instantly over the chosen one prophecy thing. I've seen that way too many times, but there's some nice weirdness at the edges that suits this film. It has apparently been defanged and made more comedic. Apparently the books are quite violent, like really so. And apparently that is something that Darren Shan or Darren O'Shaughnessy does in his work. He wrote another series of books that is ostensibly for teenagers for young adults that is are about demons and like literally has one of the main characters being eaten alive told from her first person perspective mm. he will go for it apparently this film is still surprisingly twisted in parts and i i appreciated that there are some intriguing ideas some dark ideas the plot is an afterthought though it's sort of a race to establish everything like i said it needed to be a tv show because this really does feel yeah. like mm. a pilot yeah at the end of the movie it's hinting towards a sequel that will never come mm. it's not even just hinting it's it's begging for it putting the elbow into your bloody ribs being like see see what we're setting up i have decided that sometime in the near future when i get the time i think i'm going to read the books just because i want to like see what the end of the story is Mm. yeah it's a good cast i mean they're taking their cues from harry potter in terms of the casting i mean it is the unknown lead with very strong, recognisable character actors in all of the supporting roles. Riley is very good here. I like him in serious roles a lot more than I do in comedic roles most of the time. Mm. I think he has a lot of talent. Masoglia is just empty space, though. (laughs) Hutchison is much better. Masoglia really Mm. isn't. Doesn't have a lot going on underneath the hood. Hutchison has a character that he's playing. Masoglia seemed to realise that that wasn't his strength. He is now a city councilman in Blaine, Minnesota. And his social media is full of anti-abortion stuff and Ben Shapiro retreats. Oh, that's not great. I next saw Assassin's Creed Lineage. It is, I don't know what you call it, a thriller short film, a thriller web series edited into a short film directed by Yves Simoneau. It's a spin-off of the Ubisoft video games, and it is set in the lead-up to Assassin's Creed 2, when Giovanni Ortori, played by Romano Orzari, uncovers a conspiracy against the life of Lorenzo Medici, played by Alex Ivanovici in Renaissance-era Italy. This is basically just an expensive ad for the video game. Um, it was originally released as a three-part web series to promote the game. It, it was released upcoming. Um, it's about half an hour long, but it's it's really pointless if you've played the video game. It just gives you nothing new. It's a couple of dull missions that intersect with the start of the game and sort of show off in live action some of the general ideas of what gameplay in Assassin's Creed is like. I'd actually argue don't watch it before the game because it gives away too much. It gives away... The first twist that happens a couple of hours into Assassin's Creed 2. And it also gives away who the main baddie of the whole game is. It clearly wants to be 300. I mean, that seems to have been the operating thesis on which this thing was made. 
is that let's do what 300 did and do all of that style in front of a green screen is awful effects that have aged terribly and kind of understandably because my understanding is that they used a lot of the same assets that they developed for the game so yeah those wouldn't age brilliantly some laborious slow motion as well although it does look the part it looks like assassin's creed it has the game style down um there's a lot of climbing stuff like if you just look on the walls in the background you can see like the buildings all have the sort of different details and things that you're like yeah this was the game i could climb using that stuff and a lot of the actors are actually the same ones who voice and are the character models for their characters in the game so it is kind of like seeing them in live action that is kind of cool there's almost nothing here but it is interesting as sort of a historical artifact of web series of cross-media synergy of video game advertising i mean classes on multimedia marketing might find something to analyze here but just as a story i don't recommend it it's free on youtube on the assassin's creed youtube channel however i own a blu-ray copy of it now (laughs) Um, i next saw the house of the devil it is a horror film directed by Ty West. It's set in the early 1980s and follows a financially struggling college student named Samantha. She's played by Jocelyn Donahue. She needs cash for a new apartment. And so she gets a babysitting job to babysit for this family at a remote house off in outside of town. And she gets there and it seems off. Something is wrong. She can't quite put her finger on it, but it might be because the guy who hired her is Tom Noonan. This is a movie that takes its time. In fact, it takes too much time. It is so glacial in its pacing that it ends up flatlining. Uh, it, it sustains a slow burn sort of bubble for a while. But once she's on her own out there in the house, it is quite dull. It's too short a story to have been stretched out to feature length. It would suit an anthology TV show, but it doesn't really have the fuel to go as long as it does. Uh, It's inspired by John Carpenter and Roman Polanski, definitely, in terms of the style of the filmmaking, the construction of it. And it is very well made, but it's, it's uneventful. Its most successful aspect, actually, is the look of it. Because Ty West, he does this a lot. He did this with X uh, last year. He's very, very good at making a movie look like it was made years ago. This looks so much like a horror movie from the early 80s because I saw a lot of them when I was going through that portion of the list and this just looks like it. It's shot on 16mm film. I would hazard a guess that there is nothing in the movie visual effects wise that is not in camera that could not have been accomplished on a budget horror movie back in the early 1980s. It definitely looks the part but it gives the game away in the opening text. Like it has this sort of thing that fades up that basically tells you where the movie's going to go as as sort of place setting. And it shouldn't have been like that. It should have been more like Barbarian, which when they finally tell you what's going on with this house, it should come as that kind of surprise, but it doesn't because of that opening thing. Donahue and Noonan are really, really good and you get good supporting turns by Mary Warrenov and Greta Gerwig, but it just, as a movie, I think ultimately is pretty disappointing. I saw The Fourth Kind. It's a science fiction horror movie directed by Olatunde Osinsanmi, and it follows a psychologist named Abby Tyler, played by Millie Jovovich, who is reeling from the recent uh, unsolved murder of her husband. And some of her patients uh, start to have the same troubled sleeping and visions of owls night terrors basically and she puts them under hypnosis to figure out what 
is going on here and she learns that it's actually not owls, it's aliens, that these are people being abducted in their sleep and because their brains can't cope with it, they're sort of taking the giant eyes of the aliens and the giant eyes of owls and sort of melding them together in their heads. And it only gets worse from there because, of course, the aliens actually don't like the idea that anyone knows what they're doing. Now, they don't like being mistaken for owls. It's really offensive. The most bizarre thing about this movie is that it pretends it's real. It pretends it's a documentary with reenactments. And that's absolutely absurd. At the beginning of the film, Neely Jobovich comes out in on like a, a soundstage and says, Hi, I'm actress Mila Jovovich. I'm playing the role of so-and-so in this movie. And this movie's going to have a mixture of reenactments and archival footage. And it's like, don't, don't do it, guys. Look, some people bought it. And apparently there was a lot of like anger around the movie's release online that, oh, you know, this is misleading. This is stupid, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know how people bought it because these are terrible actors that they have hired to play the supposed archival footage versions of these characters because they have to be unknowns. They can't be recognisable. And they're just really kind of awful. I mean, this this actress Charlotte Milchard plays the Abby character when she's not being played by Mila Jovovich, and she is disastrous, just dreadful. All of that's unnecessary. All of this song and dance is unnecessary because there's actually a really solid foundation to the rest of it. You didn't need this precept. It treats the movie as a whole has a really interesting take. It treats the aliens like a supernatural thing. Like there's this creeping feeling of doom. Like there's this sort of incomprehensible force that is just playing with these people's lives like they are rats in a maze, basically. And it's got this almost Lovecraftian presentation of the aliens as if to understand them to really remember what they were like and what happened when these people were abducted drives them insane it's a similar way that they handled the mcpherson tape oh yeah it's similar to that in the sense that the mere presence of the aliens has a sort of psychological effect on people and there's a lot of things here that it's doing well it's teasing things out just enough there's very interesting ideas on display here most of them pretty well executed. I do think it gets some decent moments from intercutting the quote-unquote archive footage with the real footage, like especially in a sequence that is supposed to be from like police body cam footage and stuff of a real pretty disturbing event. Um, that like There's some moments where it intercuts reenactments with that stuff that I won't say it justifies the whole experiment because it doesn't, but it, it sort of shows you why they were tempted to take this approach in the first place but it does stumble with the all of the personal life subplot of abby and her children and all of that's just pretty uninteresting i wanted to go back to the aliens i wanted to find out what was going on with them not what was going on with Mila Jovovich's shitty son but jovovich is actually this is one of the best performances i've seen her give it's the best i've seen her since her breakout role in the fifth element definitely better than all of those resident evil movies elias codius is also quite good as abby's therapist so the therapist's therapist and he sort of comes in to observe when all of this goes on and and he's a Got an interesting, he, he brings a lot of subtlety to that performance that I enjoy. And I, I would actually recommend it to fans of sci-fi horror. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but it is quite compelling. And it's just, it is bizarre that they chose to frame it in the way that it did. But lastly this week, I saw The Men Who Stare at Goats. 
It's a absurdist dramedy directed by Grant Haslov, and it is loosely inspired by the nonfiction book by John Ronson. I say loosely because the book covered the history of the US military's attempt to apply paranormal ideas, you know, psychics and stuff like that to a military application. But the actual story of this film is invented. Uh, it follows a journalist named Bob Wilton, played by Ewan McGregor. His wife has left him and he wants to prove himself. And he meets a special forces guy named Lynn Cassidy, played by George Clooney, who uh, tells him that he's a psychic warrior from this secret government program. And he's on a mission to the Middle East. And Bob tags along to see where this goes. I really liked this when I saw it, when it first came out. It was doing a lot of things differently than I, at that time, seen movies do. Like, as a 16-year-old, a lot of the movies I watched were pretty conventional. So to see see this do something that was a little bit stranger, a little bit more interesting and off the beaten path was, was enough for me. But now, having seen a lot more movies that are more experimental, I realized that while it is doing them, it's not doing them particularly well. It's quirky, but without a purpose to it. It just wears it as an aesthetic. It's trying too hard. Uh, and it struggles to weave in the past and the present um, into the same sort of storyline. There's a lot of stuff with, you know, the sort of flashbacks to this program as it was playing out before it was sort of you know, all the backstory of how Lynn was trained and all that stuff. And, and that's all way more interesting than stuff that's going on in present day. All of this stuff with Jeff Bridges as this sort of kooky military officer who gets into the New Age movement and starts trying to train psychic soldiers. That's way more interesting than all of this stuff with Ewan McGregor in the desert with George Clooney. And it sort of tries to be this half-wit inspirational sort of story about believing in yourself and finding purpose. You know, it's just a few steps away from eat, pray, love by the end of it. It trades away the opportunity to look at some real weird stuff uh, about the US military's history with this kind of thing for cheap hippie jokes that I think, you know, it, it trades away the opportunity to bite into something for cheap laughs. And I, I'm not sure that's the right call. In fact, I'm sure it isn't. It, there's an interesting undercurrent of the idea of baby boomers breaking bad in this. That, and, and that's sort of one of the most intriguing ideas that the movie has, that it doesn't really do all that much with. But it's, it is one of the things there that you're sort of like, okay, I see that there and that's really intriguing. This idea of this hippie generation, the peace and love generation, you know, the people who went to Woodstock and now look at them and look at the world they've made. There is something kind of interesting about that as a commentary, especially with the idea of Jeff Bridges as this as this baby boomer who went and investigated the New Age movement and then took a lot of it to try and turn it into this military concept, which was then co-opted by hawks in the American government. And now it's sort of burnt out into this sort of wreck of a thing as the US enters the war on terror. Like, there's a, there's something there that's really cool as an idea, but the movie just doesn't doesn't do anything other than sort of gesture vaguely at it and, and move along. And that's probably the most frustrating thing of all. But there's a lot of strong performances, everyone, really, but I think that Stephen Lang is a particular scene stealer as this sort of true believer. Doesn't really have any of this sort of supposed psychic talent of his own but really thinks that if he practices hard enough he can walk through walls and so he just ends up like charging at the wall of his office every now and again and bouncing off of it because he wants to see if he can do it 
Stephen Lang is always Yeah, there's great. some good stuff there for him. But anyways, that's it for me this week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Right, so we have quite a few things to cover, but we won't take too long on each of them. The first movie we watched is Top Gun Maverick. It is obviously the long-awaited sequel to Top Gun. After 30 years, pilot Maverick, who is played by Tom Cruise, is still pushing the envelope as a top naval aviator, but he must go back to the Top Gun Academy and face his past. He has to lead the elite graduates on a mission that demands ultimate precision. John, you say your short piece about it first? I mean, good lord. The stunts they did for this, all of the stuff in the planes, the amount of effort they went into to get those shots of the actual actors in actual military equipment flying around is just incredible. It looks fantastic. The entire movie has a very brilliant sense of cinema to it. It is wide in its visual scope, but very narrow in terms of narrative. It has a very specific plot point from the first one that it's trying to discuss and talk about. And that's where you get a lot of returning characters. Obviously, Maverick, played by Tom Cruise, is really good here. But we've also got Val Kilmer back in a short cameo as Iceman, and he does a very reasonable job considering all of the medical issues he has been going through the past five years. How does he sound at this point? Because there was a while there where he, you could really hear it in his voice, all of the stuff that he's gone through, and like he had to stop acting for a while because of it. Well, they've actually, for the character of Iceman, all of the stuff that Val Kilmer was going through, the character was going through medically. Okay. And so for a portion, he only speaks through text, but at some points he does speak. And when he does, it's very clear that he is, that it's painful to speak. It's very clear they're working around what Kilmer is comfortable doing. Yeah. And I really respect them for that. Yeah, definitely. All of the training that other actors had to go through under the tutelage of complete mad person Tom Cruise is just incredible. The effort behind this movie is fantastic. I had a really good time with it. The story is what you kind of expect it to be. For for a sequel that's coming out so long after the original, it hits all the beats it's got to hit. We get... Miles Teller is a character called Rooster. He is Goose's son. So he still holds on to a lot of resentment towards Maverick um, because he looks at Maverick as partly responsible for the death of his father. Sorry to spoil Top Gun. But Miles Teller is pretty good in this. You don't get a lot of the younger cast. I would have liked to see more of them. It does focus mainly on Maverick, though. And that is a real strength for the movie, because Tom Cruise is fantastic, as usual. You really can't knock his talents as an actor. It feels tactile. There is kind of an argument to be made that Tom Cruise is sort of the last movie star. The last person who can just sort of make a movie go through sheer force of personality alone. Yeah. Like, that even the other ones, like, might put in Brad Pitt there, well, Brad Pitt... You know, Babylon. You chuck the rock in there. Babylon's not exactly... Well, yeah, Babylon, but then the rock's got Black Adam, and it's like, Tom Cruise doesn't really have that. Every th- everything that he does, and maybe it's just because he does a lot fewer movies than the ones he does, seem to be sh- very carefully chosen, but... Other than The Mummy, but... That's true, that's true. Yeah, fair. But still, Tom Cruise is a, 
is really good here and it focuses a lot on him and that's a strength that the movie has. Whenever they're doing any of the flying in the planes and stuff, that's always exhilarating because it fe- it feels tactile in a way that if they CG'd it, it just wouldn't. That's what really carries a lot of the movie. The narrative is it's what you expect. It's what you anticipate. It, yeah. it doesn't hold anything surprising. It's the flying in the dogfights that you're there to see. What was the thing that Miles Teller was talking about? That he actually, like, due to exposure, had... Jet fuel in his blood. And, like, he went to Tom Cruise and said that, and Tom Cruise's response was, Yeah, me too, Miles. <laughs> Genuine question. This, does Tom Cruise ever stop? Like, I'm serious, because he's 60 now. Does, <laughs> does he, like, 10 years from now, are we still being like, oh, here's t- all of the crazy stuff that Tom Cruise learned to do for his new movie? Or does he see sense and say to himself, I'm an old man at a certain point and I'm just going to take it a little bit easier at least? Or alternative, like, third idea, darkest timeline does Tom Cruise, like, die in the making of one of these movies? He dies in the making of one of these movies. Yeah. I almost think he wants it at this point. I kind of yeah. I kind of half wonder if he wants that headline, if he wants to be remembered as the guy who did all of these incredible, insane things for movies and then went out in a blaze of glory. He wants to die historic on the Fury Road. The movie that he dies for is going to make all of the money. Well, if that's the thing. It's that space movie that he's apparently going to go to space to film in, like... Oh, like, like there's part, there's part of me that's just like, why are you doing it, mate? You also sort of think to yourself, you imagine the headline, right? If we woke up one morning and there was a headline from America that says, you know, Tom Cruise dead at age dot 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 after floating away from International Space Station in accidents, <laughs> like <laughs> his last words being, "Keep the camera on me." Yeah, like he Im- improvises some sort of dialogue on the spot to keep the story going so that I can finish it without it. He goes out like a total pro. Because that's what you can ex- that's what you can expect from him, you know? There's something that just, yeah, there's, I don't know, there is kind of a, there's just an evil Knievel sort of thing going yeah. on where I'm not hmm. sure how much we should all be encouraging this at this point. But he's point. the only one doing it. Yeah. I'm convinced that the only reason why Tom Cruise is willing to do so many dangerous things is because Christopher McQuarrie is one of his horcruxes. Because <laughs> he knows that he'll just be able to come back and inhabit his body. I'm convinced whenever we see Chris McQuarrie in public, that's an actor. Chris McQuarrie is just the <laughs> pseudonym for Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. But all of this, all the dogfights and the plane stuff, it's exceptional. It's exceptional. Yeah, incre- it's incredible because you can, s- you know that it's the actual ocean and actual mountains that are whipping past you at insane speeds and you feel it and that is the most effective part of the movie i don't know if that pushes it over the line because the story again is it's expected it's sweet and effective it's a little basic but it's obvious yeah you could find top gun maverick in australia on paramount plus I haven't seen it, but it is going to go on the list. It's just, um, I, I haven't seen the first movie, so I need to understand the deep lore of Top Gun. I, I must watch them in sequence. Oh, there is also a sequence where they play football on the beach, and I got irrationally angry, because it should be homoerotic volleyball. <laughs> is it at least homoerotic football? There is homoeroticism. I don't know if it's as homoerotic as the first. I don't know. 
Miles Teller and one of the other blokes give each other yeah. looks. You know what? Just go for it. Like, that's... Because they're going to make another movie. They're already talking about making a sequel because this was, like, massive, one of mm. the biggest movies of all time. Until Avatar, yeah. it was the biggest grossing movie of last <laughs> year. But made 15... Made a billion and a half dollars. You know, when they do it, just go for it. Give, give us give us the Top Gun gay romance. Right? Yeah, just go Plot. for yeah. it. Let John Hamm and Tom Cruise kiss. I was, like, yelling at the screen for them to kiss. The next movie we watched was one that I've been anticipating for the entire year since it's been announced. We have watched Matilda. Uh, it's an adaptation of the Tony and Olivier award-winning musical. Matilda tells the story of Matilda Wormwood, uh, played by Alicia Weir, an exceptional young girl armed with a sharp mind and vivid imagination who dares to take a stand to change her story with miraculous results. Lawson talked about this last week, and... I have to second everything you said. This is great. I think it was a few weeks ago now, but... Well, but you have spoken about it before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John, why don't you say your short part? Yeah, just the style of this movie is fantastic, and it ties into the incredibly witty and catchy songs written by Tim Minchin and Christopher Nightingale. The way that this has been filmed is so fun and stylish, that it puts across the role doll of it all. The performances are fantastic. Alicia Weir is a brilliant young actress, and the camera just loves her. But in terms of the actor who's doing the best performance, it's Emma Thompson as Agatha Trunchbull. Wow. Holy shit. She's taken everything that Pam Ferris did in the Danny DeVito, Mara Wilson, Matilda, and has added just a little bit of her own spice to it, where she, the songs just are brilliant coming from her. She's an imposing figure, and the makeup is fantastic. I second all the points that Lawson made in his segment about this, but I would like to talk about the Tim Minchin side of things. The writing is so witty, you can tell that it's Tim Minchin. If you listen to a lot of his comedy writing, or some of his more recent, more serious and emotional albums, it's always witty. It's always fun. It's always got this real sense of heart behind it, even when he's being sarcastic. Matilda Musical is a perfect encapsulation of everything Tim Minchin is capable of. It seems to me that the worst is over. As a musical writer. I do have to give particular credit to Alicia Weir, because she nails the patter in the songs, and that can be incredibly hard, especially for such a young performer. And again, I do have to also credit all of the previous Matildas that have been on stage. I love how they translated a lot of the ideas that they had on stage to the screen here. Dennis Kelly also directed the stage show, and you can tell that this is kind of his definitive version of the production. This is the version of the production that he would love to bring to stage, but physically cannot because of some of the really wacky, crazy shit that comes in the last third. Like John said, Emma Thompson is fantastic. Agatha Trunchbull is legitimately crazy, especially when it comes to one of the songs later on in the piece. She deviates into a completely different style partway through, and it make, just makes you think, Jesus Christ, she's mad. Um, But almost every song is fun... It gets really intense, which I didn't anticipate. This is kind of like 
the gold standard version of Matilda. I do like the Danny DeVito one, but I kind of like this one better. It has more of an edge. It's got more edge, it's got more energy, and it has a message that is incredibly important today because of all the the school strikes, the idea that children are the ones who are fighting for the future, and that is reflected in the stage show and in this movie, and that comes across really strongly here. You can, of course, find Matilda on Netflix. Third movie we watched is one that I've been anticipating, and one I absolutely adored. It is called The Menu. It is directed by Mark My Lord, where a young couple, played by Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt, go to a remote island restaurant. The head chef, uh, by the name of Slowick, played by Ray Fiennes, has prepared a lavish menu and much darker entertainment for the night. It's dinner and a yes. show in the best possible way. Uh, John, say a short piece. One of the best movies of the year. It is already in my top four. I don't know if there are going to be any other movies that will unseat it from being in that position, but it is definitely up there. This has everything that I love. It is satirical. It is scary. It is just so damn funny. I think we can all agree. It Everything that Slowick does has a point to it. And he's picked his guests very specifically. And you get great laughs from all of them. Brutal, brutal takedown of a certain class of people. And it is so brilliantly written and performed. Nicholas Holt is this movie's secret weapon. Because I don't think it works as well if you don't have someone who is so good at playing a complete moron. He falls into playing doofus so well. We've enjoyed watching him on the show The Great, and he plays a complete moron there, but he does it so fucking well here in the menu that he's just a joy to watch. Anya Taylor-Joy is also fantastic going up against Ray Fiennes, and God damn it, Ray Fiennes needs to be nominated and he needs to win for this. Because everything that you love about his performances and things, you've got here. You've got the humor, you've got the pathos, you've got... Yeah, the entire movie, you're trying not to be on his side because of some of the things he's doing, but he makes so many good points. It makes sense for him. So, you're always wrestling in your head as to how to feel about this guy. And the ending is just pure genius. Mm. Loved this. It is witty. It is It is a satire. I wouldn't call it a comedy. It has been attributed as being a comedy. I think it's a comedy. I think it's a pitch black, dark comedy. Yeah, yeah. it's like, it's on the much darker end of things. A lot of the real laugh lines for me come from Nicholas Holt and John Leguizamo. Leguizamo is always yeah. really solid. You know, I always appreciate his presence in film. He always has a really good baseline that he sets. He plays fading desperate actor very well. Can I highlight a performance that I forgot to highlight in mine that I, I just really like, and the more I, th- I think about the movie, the more I think, you know what, she did a really good job. It's Judith Light, who plays the woman who um, who thinks Anya Taylor-Joy looks like her daughter. The 
the rich wife. She is giving a really good performance, and there's yeah. a lot of like interesting, sort of subtle things going on there. I'm, I mean, I'm a Judith Light fan. She was my favorite character in Ugly Betty. I think that the movie is incredibly tense, and a lot of that comes from the real precision coming from Fines and a lot of the actors playing the other, playing his employees, the the other chefs, and they're all really, really good because they have to be moving in almost unison. And there's kind of like this robotic but cult-like energy to them. And that's the vibe I got when the movie was starting, where we got to the island and we see how self-sufficient the restaurant is, the, the Hawthorne. I got weird. This is like a Michelin star Midsommar. And I had a wonderful, wonderful time with the The score is outstanding and really puffs off at certain points, but it has this really beautiful number near the end. Uh, over the cooking of a certain meal that is one of the best, most beautiful moments of cinema this year. Do you think it's inching towards Golden Barney? I wouldn't think so, no. As a fellow shit shoveler, as this movie would describe it, I felt seen. And I have to say, five stars, I would be very pleased to dine at the Hawthorne again. Uh, You should be able to find the menu on Disney+. Plus. We have also watched... A few anthology horror films, specifically VHS 94 and VHS 99, which I will speak about together instead of separating them. So these are both anthology horror films being sort of headed by David Bruckner and Brad Miska, with segments directed by multiple different horror filmmakers. VHS 94 follows an overarching plot from a, of a SWAT team who stumbles upon a sinister cult compound and its collection of haunted VHS tapes. And VHS 99, one second, has a short framing narrative with some stop-motion animations that are being made by one of the characters from a later sequence. I really like these. You know me, I love horror anthology, and these are just really fun. They are uneven, as a lot of horror anthologies are, but there is some true pieces of gold here, but I'll let Harley speak about them first. So, like John said, we're big fans of horror anthologies. I like short-form horror. I I do love long-form horror, but with short-form horror, nobody is safe, and they're nice and bite-sized, so you can consume a lot of them at once, and they very easily stick in the mind because of that. I love a lot of the sequences here. There's a lot of straight-up horror, but there's a lot of comedy horror. One of my favorite sequences in VHS 99, I believe, is a couple of people are videotaping a a witch's ritual to sort of, like, mark the event. It's about to switch over into the year 2000. They get sent to hell, and where they shot that sequence looks, like, outstanding. They they scouted the perfect location for that, because it looks like hell. But that one's quite funny. It's the sequence called To Hell and Back, written and directed by Vanessa and Joseph Winter. I would say VHS 94 is probably stronger than 99 is, but I still had a really good time with them both. I would like to go back to see some of the previous VHS movies. We're kind of watching them in reverse. They are making another one too, where they're going 85, yeah. I think that's a good idea to do the... um, the sort of different styles of horror. Yeah, and it, it allows you to really hit 
Yeah, they really do. They've there's a lot of detail that's gone into making these feel like they're from late nineties and early nineties. And I'm very excited to see eighty five and you know, maybe if they go back to VHS seventy five or something. I feel like that would be really interesting. But because we've spoken quite a bit about the other ones, I won't take too long. Uh suffice to say Hail Rotma. Hail Rotma. And anyone who has seen VHS 94 would understand what I'm referencing there. Generally, I like these quite a bit, and I'm excited to see what the franchise does in the future. Short form horror is just always compelling. Yeah, because you've got an idea, and you do it. And you don't really have to worry about doing too much. Also, there's a fantastic sequence with a right-wing militia being brutally murdered by a vampire which is so full of biting criticism Mm. and satire which is genius but you can find both of these as well as the other vhs films on shudder which is i think my favorite streaming service so that is what we've seen within the week now we will play for you the trailer to 2012 Here to the Mayan calendar, which predicts the end of time to occur on the 21st of December of 2012. The world as we know it will soon come to an end. It's starting. The Mayans knew about it. The Bible. It's the end of the world, my friends. and decided the people have the right to fight for their lives. We have barely 15 minutes left. We're gonna die. No, we're not. The moment we stop fighting for each other, that's the moment that we lose our humanity. Hang on, baby, hang on! was the trailer for 2012. It is a disaster movie directed by Roland Emmerich, and it's about that time in 2012 when the world ended. As in all Emmerich disaster movies, we follow a variety of people as they try and survive an apocalyptic scenario in which the sun's neutrinos mutated, superheated the Earth's core enough to melt it and disconnect it from the Earth's crust, thereby leaving room for the tectonic plates to slide around a bit and for the South Pole to relocate to Wisconsin. No, seriously, that's what this movie's about. 
The Motley crew trying to outsmart this affront to science includes Adrian Helmsley, played by Tuatel Ejiofor, a geologist who helped discover what was happening several years before things went completely haywire, thus giving the American government time to prepare. He's working with hard-nosed bureaucrat Carl Anhauser, played by Oliver Platt, to help coordinate the US's role in a secret international effort to build survival arcs on which the brightest and richest can escape the coming destruction. As the fireworks kick off, Helmsley becomes disillusioned with all the secrecy, an opinion shared by the President Thomas Wilson, played by Danny Glover, and his daughter Laura, played by Tandy Newton. Meanwhile, unsuccessful science fiction author turned limo driver Jackson Curtis, played by John Cusack, is trying to reconnect with his two children Noah, played by Liam James, and Lily, played by Morgan Lily. They far prefer their more stable stepfather Gordon, played by Tom McCarthy, a sentiment not shared by their mother Kate, played by Amanda Peet, who's just waiting for the opportunity to drop the guy to the curb. Due to an encounter with a radio conspiracy theorist named Charlie Frost, played by Woody Harrelson, Jackson is more aware than most of what's coming, and when the shit first starts hitting the fan, he reacts with speed. He manages to evacuate his loved ones, and also Gordon, from the initial destruction, but to survive longer term, they'll need to make their way to the arcs Charlie told him about. Happily, Jackson's employer, an obscenely wealthy Russian businessman named Yuri, played by Zlatko Burek, has tickets booked for him and his family, and he lets Jackson and co. tag along in exchange for amateur pilot Gordon's assistance co-piloting the plane they need to get to the arcs construction site in the mountains of Tibet. They're working under a deadline, though. The global tectonic shifts have triggered massive tidal waves that will envelop the entire planet soon, including their destination. So, before we go too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of 2012. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. <sighs> 2012. You remember it? Life was so simple back then. Sure, you had to run away from a giant ash cloud at Yellowstone or two. You had to run away from a typhoon, an earthquake, the earth splitting beneath your feet. Yeah. But anyway, on to the movie. The script and the characters are kind of boring. (laughs) No, no, you're done. Sorry, you wasted it all. (laughs) Harley, you ready to go? (laughs) Yep. Three, two, one, Actually say something about the movie. No, tough luck. Let this be a lesson. (laughs) Uh, Am I going now? Yeah, three, two, one, go. Okay, so I'll actually talk about the movie this time. I think when all the action is popping off, the world is being destroyed, that's all mindless but fun. But it kind of gets dull when we're stuck with the characters. I like what GFO is doing, but it's not much. I don't think it's very smart movie. I don't think it's a very great movie, but it's destruction, and destruction is always fun to some degree. All right. I think this is thrillingly stupid. Um, I always love these kinds of movies, you know, disaster movies, people spread out all over the place and different things popping off and this slowly dwindling cast of characters that have got to survive. I mean, it is dumb as a pile of bricks. I mean, it's, it's got absolutely no sense in its head whatsoever, but... Jeez, it's fun. I agree that the characters and the story aren't great, but I do think that the mostly extremely talented cast keeps things rolling, keeps it with the momentum it needs. I do have a production history here. I'm not going to go 
too deep onto this first bit just for time reasons, but the film does take its starting off point from the long-standing theory, which basically just became a meme by 2012, that the sudden end of the ancient Mayans calendar on the 21st of December 2012 would accompany the apocalypse. Basically, the Mayans thought that the world works in 5,000-year cycles. At the end of each one, the gods would strike down civilization to improve on their creation. Obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, In 2012, apparently the gods are satisfied with what we've got going on at the moment. I don't know why. This would be a Sims game I would be looking to delete. The film's credits actually cite a book as inspiration. Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock, which is... A non-fiction book, in quotes. It theorises that our civilization was preceded by an ancient one that was wiped out somehow. And director Roland Emmerich says that this was where he first heard about Earth's crust displacement theory, which is what causes all of the damage here. Originally, his idea for the movie was to do sort of a modern-day Noah's Ark story, and the 2012 bit was only added in later as a bit of sort of serendipity to make it a bit more topical. He consulted experts, including astronomers and geologists, from the sounds of it, it was a bit like the end point was fixed and Emmerich just wanted them to come up with a extremely convoluted domino chain of near impossible events that could lead to the things that he wanted to depict on screen. So basically he consulted them, then was like, that's not good enough, I'm going to choose to ignore it. Well, he was just saying, like, come up with all of the theoretical things that could happen to have this take place. Mm. And there's a lot of slightly embarrassed looking experts on the disc (laughs) that make for a a fun watch as they're trying to like they appear to be trying to sort of like yeah none of this no probably not (laughs) to be fair the chain reaction caused by yellowstone yeah we're we're going to get to that but one of those people on the disc a guy named patrick gerald author of how to survive 2012 has a different tack. I am very sure that everything that is shown in the movie 2012, like magnetic reversals, tsunamis, earthquakes, and volcanoes bursting out, they will happen in 2012. He says in the in the featurette that he is working with a survivalist group to figure out a way to survive. And I hmm. desperately searched online to find pretty much anything from him post the world not actually ending in 2012 to see what he would say. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't. I couldn't. I even like went so far as to like look at studies about the psychology of people who really believed in doomsday scenarios that didn't happen, just to see if I could find a quote from him there somewhere, but no. My question is, did he survive? <laughs> the movie also tackles a couple of smaller real-world possibilities triggered by 2012. You mentioned, Harley, the Yellowstone super eruption. The Yellowstone is a dormant volcano in America, in their national park, Yellowstone Park. It has had a super eruption before, like thousands and thousands of years ago. It's actually not guaranteed to happen again, but probably will on a long enough timeline. And when I say long enough timeline, we're talking hundreds of thousands of years here. This is not going to happen anytime soon. But the ash cloud, if this happened, would cover the entire US and most of Canada and Mexico. The closest states in the US would find themselves under three feet of ash. This would kill a lot of people, obviously, and a 
it would obliterate the nature that all of that ash came into contact with. It would kill the plants, it would blot out the sun. But this would also have a knock-on effect that would make things really sticky, especially in the near term. Nuclear plants would go, electrical grids would go, supply lines, communications lines. It would basically be the end of the United States as a functioning country, and it would send the whole continent out of commission for the foreseeable future. Uh, Other continents would not be great either. There would actually be, under this scenario, dust settling over the continent of Europe. I'm not sure if it would make its way down to Australia, but it would go wide. It just wouldn't be nearly as destructive as it would be in the US. There is also in this movie depicted the San Andreas Fault in California. That is a line of particularly hyperactive earthquake faults. There is this idea of the big one, you know, when is this fault finally going to kick off again? Because it has done in the past, and this is, in fact, such a well-known sort of theory, and it is so earthquakey in those areas that they made a movie about it, San Andreas, starring Dwayne Johnson. But uh, the thing is, the Andreas Fault is actually overdue to erupt. It's not really an on-off thing. It's not really like no earthquakes and giant earthquake. It's like a ton of smaller faults sort of bundled together like a nerve system, and some of them have been going off recently and others haven't, and some are overdue and others aren't. The way that Robin Williams describes it is God's Etch-A-Sketch. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so don't don't be looking for me to explain earthquakes to you. But basically, when they talk about the big one, they're talking about setting off a chain reaction that yeah. just mm. basically just blows the whole thing open. And uh, it wouldn't be nearly as bad as, say, the San Andreas movie suggests, but it still would not be good. It wouldn't trigger a tidal wave, most likely, but it it would collapse buildings and trigger devastating fires. It would rip apart underground utilities, and that would not be good. I mean, natural gas lines, earthquake, boom. Yeah. Mm. For reference, the most famous quake in modern Californian history, San Andreas Fault is in California, was San Francisco in 1906. Uh, It was the deadliest earthquake in American history by body count, killed over 3,000 people, and the closest competitor killed less than 200. So, pretty big. But Mm. that earthquake destroyed 80% of the city of San Francisco and, uh, as I said, killed over 3,000 people, triggered a massive fire. And this was in 1906. It would be way worse now with all of the skyscrapers and, and all of that stuff the density of people, and that wasn't a big one. We haven't had a big one in a long time. That was just a sort of decently sized one. It was a 7.9. For reference, the 2011 Japanese earthquake was a 9.1. Oh, Jesus. The big one is meant to make those all look like a person jumping on your bed in comparison. But anyways, now that I've scared the living daylights out of our American listeners... The Earth is scary, guys! (laughs) Yep. Us in tropical locations... Also not going to be in a great position if the Ring of Fire blows. Back to the movie. Emmerich and his usual composer, Harold Closer, worked together on the script. They collaborated on this. This is... They've actually done it again since. They wrote Moonfall together, so apparently there's... I knew that was what you were going to say, because... Doesn't Moonfall have a lot of the same problems? I wouldn't say problems. I would, would say, like, gleeful aversion to science and, like, just insane... On-screen well, devastation. Roland Emmerich is also the guy who suggested that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. Yeah, so. but Harold Close is only here for the disaster stuff. I mean, he is a composer mostly, and he still composes all of Roland Emmerich's other movies, but it's just this and Moonfall that he's, he's done 
as a screenwriter with Roland Emmerich. He's not interested in Midway or Anonymous or Stonewall. No, only in the insane, inexplicably stupid disaster movies. But they were working together on a script, which was then pitched to studios in February of 2008 before being picked up by Sony. And the marketing of the film made heavy use of the various 2012 conspiracy theories that were, uh, especially at that time, starting to gain traction as the the dates came closer. There was a lot of, like, in-universe meta stuff on the internet from Charlie, like stuff produced by Charlie as a promotional tool. There was a fake story that circled around a lot of social media about a lottery distributing tickets for the ARCs, and Mm. NASA apparently got over a thousand inquiries about whether this was legitimate. All of this got some criticism for upsetting the internet's most gullible denizens. I'm kind of torn on this, because on the one hand... Come on. Come on. I mean, it's not even being reported in the least trustworthy cable news stations or tabloid magazines, like, get real. Mm. But on the other hand, maybe we might, it's just my 2022 glasses on, but sort of the idea of like conspiracy theorists don't need our help. Like we don't need to help them create hysteria. Like <laughs> they're doing perfectly fine on their own. Yeah. They're already willing to do the most batshit things possible. They'll be right. The movie came out in the United States on the 13th of November 2009. Its widest release there was in 3,444 theatres. It opened number one at the box office against The Boat That Rocked and the limited release of Fantastic Mr. Fox, which later went wide. A massive financial success is what this movie was. It made $791 million on a $200 million budget. It was the fifth highest grossing movie of 2009, and it remains at the time of recording the 102nd highest grossing movie ever. The film came out in Australia the day before, on November the 12th. Its widest release here was in 405 theatres, and it was number one at the box office against a local film called The Boys Are Back. Made $18.1 million of its gross here. It received mostly negative reviews from critics, however. It has a 39% Rotten Tomatoes score. And the critics' consensus there reads, Roland Emmerich's 2012 provides plenty of visual thrills, but lacks a strong enough script to support its massive scope and inflated length. Mm. Audiences were kinder. They gave it a B plus cinema score. The movie did get nominated for some awards, mostly from the more genre-focused stuff, as is usually the case with these sorts of movies. But The film did make an appearance at the Saturn Awards, where it was nominated for Best Action Adventure Thriller Film and Best Special Effects. It was also nominated at the Teen Choice Awards for Choice Movie Actress Science Fiction for Amanda Peet, Choice Movie Actor Science Fiction for John Cusack, and Choice Movie Science Fiction. I will actually say here, whatever you think of the movie, I think that film was robbed of a nomination for Best Visual Effects at the Oscars. Oh, yeah. Specifically for the time, I mean, good lord. Yeah, it is still genuinely stunning, some of these things. Some of them have aged. Some of them have. it's amazing what they were able to do. I get that the this is like the last kind of movie that the Oscars want to recognise. <laughs> yeah. This is the kind of movie that they wake up at night in a cold sweat. Yeah, but like, come on, you've got to... Got to give it where it's due. Otherwise, what's the point of the film? Um, I mean, yeah. the other movies nominated were Life of Pi, which won, The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey, Marvel's The Avengers, Prometheus, and Snow White and the Huntsman. So I think the obvious cut there is Snow White and the Huntsman. 
Yeah. Oh no, sorry, I'm I'm getting confused. That was the year 2012, not the year 2009. Year 2009. Okay, now I kind of get it because the year 2009 was before they changed the rules of the visual effects category, so it was only three nominees instead of five. So the winner was Avatar, which no one's going to dispute. And the other two nominees were District 9 and Star Trek. So it does make more sense Fair. to me now. Believe it or not, there was almost a television spin-off of this movie that was set up for development at ABC, the American ABC. In 2010, they were developing that. Uh, it was going to be called 2013, and it would have been about the survivors rebuilding society. No, why would it be called 2013 when at the end of the movie, they literally put the date as 0001? I don't know, because people wouldn't know to connect it to the movie if they did that. I don't know. The network ultimately passed on that project, presumably because of the inevitable cost, as well as the failure of some of their other genre series at the time, like Flash Forward and V. The film achieved an unexpected surge of interest in March of 2020. In the first days of the COVID-19 lockdown, 2012, along with a number of other disaster movies, shot up on top 10 of all of these streaming sites and iTunes and all sorts of things. It actually ended up making it to the second most watched movie on American Netflix in March of 2020. And definitely, I think that's a phenomenon we'll see in these production histories if we cover stuff like Contagion or things like that. Mm. That That was a weird little part of those early days of the coronavirus lockdowns. But that is the production history for 2012. And I would like to just start at the top here by talking about that there is there is a part of this movie. I mean, Moonfall, I love me Moonfall. Like, it's, it's so unbelievably stupid. But I can think of very few movies I had more fun watching last year than that. But the thing about Moonfall is that it's so science fiction-y. It's, it's, it is a disaster movie, but it's also like this bonkers science fiction film. This, though, 2012, I think is Roland Emmerich doing the ultimate disaster movie because he Mm -hmm. is kind of rolling in every other disaster movie into the one film. I mean, you got The Day After Tomorrow with the tidal waves. You got the San Andreas, obviously. You got the core. You got Deep Impact. Even manages to work in Titanic and Waterworld. Like, it is every major disaster movie, except maybe Twister or something like that. But it is the greatest hits of the genre in a way that I think is really... Again, like, we're going to keep coming back to this, I know, but it is so stupid. But it is, at the same time, so entertaining to watch. Yeah, I agree. Particularly the scenes where LA is being destroyed. That's all really fun shit, you know? It's mindless, sure. And it does it operate a little bit on cartoon logic? Absolutely. But it's still fun as hell. It actually, interestingly, doesn't lean into the 2012 of it very much at all. No, it doesn't. It's got one guy who says, huh, I guess the Mayans got it right. And it's like, actually, no. They were six months late on it. And, and also, like, that's not what it means. The actual end of that calendar is like 3770. So, it's like, come on. It makes me think that it really was almost a PR thing of of the Mm. sort of rising awareness of 2012 and the Mayan calendar. And they wanted to, like, connect that to, you know, this disaster movie that they were making. Oh, for sure. It feels like an afterthought. It almost assures an audience. Once you know that he was sort of 
coming at it from the idea of like a prehistoric civilization and a giant biblical flood in the modern day. Like that makes more sense the way that the movie is structured. Mm. Mm. It is interesting because it's the greatest hits and that includes the escapes from things, the driving away from Yellowstone having gone fucking Super Saiyan to flying a plane through bloody buildings and driving a limo. Through a collapsing building, like through a window, through the building outside the other side of the building, through another window. Great stuff. Those sequences are where the film is at its best. Mm. Because that's where it's like, you can turn your brain off and be like, pretty explosions. It is incredible stuff. It is an extraordinary technical accomplishment. And I do think... It's interesting. I mean, Harley, you were saying in your 30 Second Thoughts how particularly unimpressed you were with the characters and and some of that stuff. I do think it's telling that those sequences are the ones that stand out the most because it is the moment where the movie becomes animated, like literally as a format, animated instead of live action. And we are no longer dealing with the characters or the people. They just become so many pixels falling down vast crevasses in the earth. Exactly, Mm. like, Yellowstone going nuts is incredible to see, and you see Charlie crying, and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's the proper response. But I also do like the scene where John Cusack is talking to Buddy Housen's character, and you could also tell that Cusack's character is just humouring him. Mm. Mm. I gotta say, Charlie has pretty decent production values for what he's what he's got going on there. He has a good setup. Yeah, but like the animated video that he did himself, like this is all pretty solid stuff. Well, Lawson, he's a renaissance man. <laughs> it, it just so happens the most batshit insane person in the entire movie was the one who was dead on it. Well, he was mostly right. That's the case in every Roland Emmerich movie. It's the thing that I used to find like vaguely amusing about Roland Emmerich movies, but now find vaguely troubling is his <laughs> his personal alignment with conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, the Shakespeare Truther movie, the Bradley James character, or the, I forget, is it Bradley James? I don't know. The guy who's talking about the moon being hollow in Moonfall. Even, like, back to Independence Day, it, I mean, they're always right. When Jeff Goldblum's dad is on Air Force One talking about, like, we need to go to Area 51, they'll know what to do. And everyone's like, oh, dude, you're crazy. And then one of the higher-ups guys goes, well, actually, is always right. Every conspiracy theorist in a Roland Emmerich movie is right. And that used to be less troubling to me than it is these days. Well, it's when conspiracy theories were less troubling. Yeah, they used to be more fun. Exactly. I know, right? It was shit like the Chupacabra or Mothman stealing people. It was like alien abductions. Yeah. It was it was the lizards, man. It was the lizards. They weren't attacking government buildings or sending bombs in the mail or things like that. They weren't attempting to kidnap governors. Yeah. It was like, come on, was there like the slightest hint of anti-Semitism in some of them? Absolutely. Well, sure. more than the slightest. More than the slightest, yeah. I think, is, like, massive. But there's the plausible deniability of it being, like, they can't really believe people are lizards. I, I miss when conspiracy theorists were, like, doing their own drawings of little grey aliens wearing funny hats. Yeah. And being like, I could shoot alien spirits with my ghost gun. But now it's that people is what sending I miss. death threats to pizza places, and it's like, come on. Hmm. 
the internet ruined conspiracy theorists. In, in the many, yeah. the many, many things that the internet ruined, conspiracies are one of them. You know, yeah. we yeah. used to be able to have the X Files, and that was fun and kooky and creepy. But now we've got, I don't even know, like. How troubling would the X-Files be if it was on now, you know? Now America has conspiracy theorists in Congress, so... Well, considering how short the different modern runs of the bloody X-Files was, yeah. that should tell you something. Well, that was actually more just Gillian Anderson didn't want to do a third one, but... Yeah. But yeah. Like, the X-Files has got all this deep state stuff in it, too, when you really stop and think about it. I mean, it's a cigarette-smoking man and his cabal of weirdos... Who assassinated JFK because they wanted to control the government. Yeah, but that's all cool deep state stuff of, like, they've got alien technology and yeah. shit. Yeah, and no one's attacking the Capitol building in X-Files. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually think, with Charlie, that's the one thing of this where you're like, okay, there's a kind of a gap between the realities of 2009 and the realities of 2012 that I'm not totally sure that... Charlie works as a radio guy, as an independent radio guy. I think no. in 2012... He's got a YouTube channel. I don't know if he'd have a YouTube channel or if he'd be... He'd be doing whatever Alex Jones was doing in 2012. Mm. Yeah. Like, the fact that he is actually on a, a live radio broadcast that can be tuned in by the turning the dial in your car, mm. like, I think that that's gone by 2012. Internet Podcasts radio. weren't huge back then, but they still existed. Maybe maybe Charlie had been doing it for a while and just sort of yeah. was at the end yeah. of it. If they did it now, he wouldn't have that. Remember, folks, you heard it first from Charlie. Like, he'd be standing there as the earth opened up in front of him. And, he'd say, and remember to hit that bell to like and subscribe. <laughs> and buy my rhino powdered boner pills. <laughs> He would die saying something shit about Gamergate. Like, that's how he would go. <laughs> this is somehow Anita Sarkeesian's fault. <laughs> but I, I like the performance from Woody Harrelson here, because he's taking it to the absolute hilt, and you can tell that he's just having a blast. The Charlie thing is amusing, mm. and it's still mostly innocent, I would argue. Cusack's character's boring now. I think that's Cusack, quite frankly. <laughs> well, he has stated on the record, I did it for the money. Yeah. I mean, I, I will talk about this a little bit, not, not to telegraph my Lithgow recasting pick. I did have a little trouble picking this week because I think that Lithgow could work for pretty much any of the male characters in this movie. Yeah. And, and that's not because they are a specific type. It's because they are not specific types. They are very vague and generalized. There's not much depth to any of them. Mm. And it is all really dependent on the actors to use yeah. their own personalities to create that. And a lot of them do it. Some of them do it really well. I think Danny Glover equates himself well. I I don't. I would single out Cusack and Glover as the, the least effective members of the cast. Because I think both of them are very flat and monotone and uninterested. In what's going on. Yeah, but on Danny Glover them. isn't drunk in this like he was in Saw. <laughs> I, I think there's someone like Edgier for Tandy Newton, Oliver Platt, they do good work. Tom yeah. McCarthy as Gordon, I think, is is pretty good. Tom McCarthy, by the way, you know him, you just don't know him. Like, he's the director of Spotlight. What? He is the director of Spotlight. So the director of Award-winning film, Spotlight. Best picture at the Oscars, Spotlight. Best picture about revealing 
child sexual abuse in the church. Mm-hmm. Just six years earlier was starring in 2012. Where he cocks John Cusack. I think it's the other way around, Harley. <laughs> <laughs> she clearly still has a thing for Cusack, right? I mean, R.I.P. Gordon, you deserve better, mate. Like, he I was more upset it. about his death than his wife was, and I wasn't very upset. Like, <laughs> yeah. When he got ground up, I was like, but he was nice. He was kind of a real He one. wasn't a shitter. He was a pleasant guy. Hmm. They try to convince you he's a shitter at the beginning, but they do give him that dimension a bit later on. He was a stepfather stepping up. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little, because I think, and we have kind of touched on it before, but we've never really drilled down into the psychology behind it. But it's a very odd and kind of like mean-spirited thing in a lot of uh, particularly American movies. And bizarrely enough, disaster movies. That's true. But the idea that the broken family must be repaired, the idea that the step-parent, be it the stepfather or the stepmother, must be removed and the broken family repaired. Mm. We most recently talked about it in Taken, the way that they they treat the Xander Berkeley character in that. Especially the third one. Especially the third one. I find this to be an interesting phenomenon, especially considering how gone that sort of, or or how much less centred that old sort of wife-husband, 2.5 children view of the family is. There's many more blended families now. The divorce Mm. rate is much higher. Like, you would think that this stuff would have started to fade away, but it kind of hasn't. Like, Mm. there's there's still a weird sort of traditionalism in this idea of, like, the step-parent must be rejected. I think part of it is that there was so much focus on what can we do in this movie that they had to fall back on cliches, and that's one of them. There's, like, Russian oligarch with a bunch of money buying a bunch of cars that he'll literally only have, like, a few months to use, and, like, it's all cliched. Well, Emmerich, to be fair to him, has improved in this regard. Moonfall does feature that same dynamic, but instead of it being a a, a sort of a Gordon that you've got to, that the movie sort of tries to telegraph that we shouldn't care about, Moonfall kind of does the opposite and makes him a really solid, heroic guy. Um, Mm. He's played by Michael Pena in that movie. So there is sort of a a change, but still, there's still some, some of the directions that Moonfall goes in still adheres to that level of traditionalism in a way that I... I don't it want to get too weird. specific on because it would, would be a spoiler for Moonfall, yeah. but but like that still does seem like I don't know, that maybe maybe we're just talking about a lot of people in Hollywood having daddy issues. I don't know. I don't think that's really far from it. Yeah. And I, I think it's so interesting that in this movie there are so many moments where it seems like they want you to feel like Gordon has crossed the line, like when they're flying away from Yellowstone, when when they see Cusack go into the hole and he starts the plane, mm. we're meant to think, oh, he's... No, he's doing the right thing. He saw him go into the hole. Or the argument in the grocery store before yeah. the earth opens up and he's kind of like, this guy is a deadbeat. And it's like, yeah, he is. He had forgotten to go to pick his kids up and he couldn't even turn up in his own car because he hadn't done all the prep work. You know, he had to go into the limo and put everything together at the very last moment. He was woken up by a phone call from his wife asking where he was. Gordon is also like vaguely sensing that she's kind of not into him. Mm. 
and he wants clarification on that. Yeah. Gordon just wants to communicate. And he's not the bad person because he wants to communicate. And he openly communicates, I'm not a pilot. Please stop calling me a pilot. <laughs> he also dies in the most like brutal possible way. Yeah. Like we see a lot of people like fall down holes, washed away in floods. He gets ground up. Mm. Yeah. That's different. Well, the same thing pretty much goes for the Russian businessman's girlfriend. Yeah. No one even, no one even mentions her after she dies. She dies alone, yeah. drowning in a room that yeah. apparently, like, for, I'm trying to figure out the compartments there. Cause, like, why does she drown? What, yeah, why does she drown, but the people closer to the breach don't? That's what, like, busted my head. It's It doesn't make sense yeah. why that compartment specifically fills up faster then, like, what, the waist-high water? It's kind of mean-spirited, because she had just saved the little girl's life. Yeah. And the demented-looking dog. <laughs> but, like, they don't even mention her after she's gone. Like, no one mentions her after she dies. It's entirely pointless. And she was a legitimately sympathetic character, yes. too. But that is also kind of a, if you want to go there, kind of ties into that sort of traditionalism and moralizing that she is the young trophy girlfriend. And you get that scene of Yuri on the plane looking at the photo of his ex-wife as if to be like, oh, I screwed up. I should have, you know, stayed with the mother of my children. And... No, should have invited her into the big boat. Exactly. Like, what are you doing, Yuri? It's a little late to be reminiscing about the past when it's about to be washed away in a flood. Well, I did sort of think, wait, has she died? Has she already passed away? But then there's that line between the the kids when they're talking about, oh, our parents are divorced too. Mm. When they're talking to Cusack's kids. I want to talk about Yuri because I love Yuri. Yuri's my favourite character in this thing. He goes so big. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I love about it. And this guy, Slutko Burek, he is so fun in this. I actually recognised him because I just saw him in Triangle of Sadness playing an extremely similar character. <laughs> <laughs> the rich Russian businessman whose entire life goes wrong. <laughs> Yeah. I love the mad Sorvino energy he's got. It's a very specific niche that he fills perfectly. I love, like, his sort of catchphrase of, like, this is good. <laughs> but then yes. but then when he sees, what is it, when he sees that, like, the, pl- the airport, right? He goes, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> I love when they, like, fly over Hawaii. It's like, yeah. this is very not good. I would have loved if... When he chucked his his kid up as he's, like, just desperately trying to get his son. Like, he goes out pretty heroically, I think, yeah. saving his son. Yeah. But, like, if as he's falling, he just says, This is good! <laughs> as he's going down, he sees his son's okay. Like, stone cold badass. I, I do love how when they're in the car trying to start it, it's like, what, Oh, God, what's the line that he says? It's something like, Voice control. Voice control. They sold me on it. It sold me on it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's just such a fun character. He, he like, knocks out the person who's guarding the door, and it's like, follow me, everyone, to freedom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he kind of is the one that doesn't act like he's in danger at any point. <laughs> no. No, he's just chill. I think I've cottoned on to it. My favourite performances in the movie are the caricatures. Hmm. 
Yeah. You've got him, you've got Charlie. Gordon himself is kind of a caricature of a, of, a caricature, but... of a stepfather stepping up. I think that Tom McCarthy's doing a decent job as Gordon. Mm. Someone else I want to draw attention to is Oliver Platt as Anne Houser. Yes. yes. Because yes. I find Anheuser to be a really interesting case of... Yeah. Uh, for, for at least for us, from what we've talked about before we started recording, of the audience rejecting what it is that the movie's trying to get us to think. That the yeah. movie is trying to get us to think that Anheuser is an unreasonable asshole. And he isn't. He is right for all of the movie until the very, very end. The only thing that he's wrong about is not opening the doors to let all those people on. And yeah. he's clearly yeah. having a panic attack by that point. So... All of this other stuff, like, oh, we should tell the people in advance. And he's just like, you know, we are responsible for the survival of our species, you know? So what do you think's going to happen if we tell everyone? Yeah. And I do think it's interesting. I mean, it's it's mostly the way that Emmerich directs it, but there's a lot in the script too that is sort of confused about how we are supposed to feel about him. Because I think that the, the script ultimately does decide that we are supposed to hate him. And let me tell you that yeah. that is... There are deleted scenes in this. Like, did you watch that whole scene when Edgy Four's like trying to fix the problem with the gears and everything, and Platt is cheering him out of like, "Oh, I hope you're happy that you got to be, you know, nice to everyone because now we're all gonna die." Did you watch that whole scene thinking that Edgy Four was gonna punch him? Yeah, that's because he did in the original cut. They deleted an extra thing, which is basically it was a really stupid line, but it also I think they wisely realized that it took Anheuser too far, where Anheuser says, what are you going to do now? You're going to try and screw the president's daughter? And then Edgy of Four punches him in the face. And then mm. Tandy Newton sort of gives him a sort of batting her eyelashes look like, oh, it turns me on when, when men punch each other to defend my honor. Yeah. <laughs> I like seeing Oliver Platt get <laughs> flattened out. There was also an extra scene that I actually wished that they had kept. But I was, well, I don't know. I don't know whether they kept it because it, it, it actually, you could read it two ways. You could read it as like another point of the movie sort of trying to tell us that Anheuser was wrong the whole time. Or you could read it as sort of acknowledging that he wasn't really a bad guy, which is they, there was an, another scene when they go up to the bridge at the end and there's like, oh, the South Pole's in Wisconsin now. There was going to be a little scene of Anheuser apologizing to Edgy for, mm. which I, I could see go either way. But all of the stuff that he's doing is confused. Well, the way that the movie wants us to feel about him is confused by the levels of shading that not only that Platt's giving him, but that the movie itself is giving him. I find it very interesting that they have that scene of him putting his money where his mouth is. He's not taking his 89-year-old mother. You know, every seat on that thing is vital to the future survival of humanity. His 89-year-old mother, who doesn't know what day of the week it is anymore, he's not going to do that. And it tears him apart, that's clear, but it's not going to do that. And that that's where I think that's sort of an interesting sort of driver for some of his behaviour, because that scene immediately precedes the moment where he sort of rips Edgier for for telling his dad. Mm. Mm. I'm glad your father can keep his mouth shut, because you clearly can't. Yeah, already been, like, winning a trip to the Paris Tunnel where Lady Di died. Mm. When the movie said that, I was like, Hey, Roland, 
Let's not. Like, again, and you, you there's the sort of conspiracy theorist part, isn't it? Like, it's all these little things. Like, are we supposed to take by that that he is implying that this is the go-to assassination location in Paris? <laughs> like, Because if it is, it's a highly yeah. publicised one. You can only do it once. Yeah, you can only do it once. Otherwise, it starts to seem like you're just playing the hits. I don't know. I feel like you can get away with another one 15 years after the last time. Well, sure. But that's it. After two of them, high profile. Well, you got to wait another 15 years after that. And I don't think the director of the Louvre is as high profile as Princess Diana. Well, sure, unless Fair. the director of the Louvre had children with Prince Charles. But then at the end, you get the little shot of the Queen going on with the all corgis. of the corgis. And, and that is, uh, she's in on it. Maybe given what, you know, that she passed away last year, maybe people might be a little touchy, but I'll, I'm going to say it anyway. Why are they bringing her? Like, why are they bringing she Elizabeth II? I don't think so either, actually. She was. She would have been a down with the ship. I think so. Kind yeah. Of Nothing about her personality, both through her personality as given by the media, by official channels, and everything behind the scenes that mm. you hear. Nothing implies she cuts and runs. Yeah, but also, why are they bringing her? Even yeah. if she did want to come, why? What's she going to give you? Gone. She is a mm. woman in her mid-80s who is royalty, does not have any of the skills that would be necessary to do what needs to be done in the aftermath of this thing. I do like that, like, she brought the corgis, but she doesn't seem to have brought Philip or Charles. <laughs> well, also, Andrew's not getting a spot. No, 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 no. no, no. Andrew got friggin' uh, Jeffrey Epstein's second. Yeah, is he bunking with Epstein? Probably. Worst celebrity reference, that honestly, awful Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Yeah, yeah. That was legitimately terrible. Basically zero earthquake activity in Southern California, which is very rare. Unlike many of the tough characters I have portrayed. Also, it seems to me that the worst is over. Back to what you were saying about Platt's character and the way that we're meant to view him. It is very clear that Roland takes sides. He has an author insert character in John Cusack's character. There's that part where Ajiofor is talking to his character about finding Atlantis or whatever the hell his stupid book is called. And Farewell is Atlantis. saying that he disagreed with the critics for thinking that the guy was too optimistic and everything. That is very clearly Emric projecting and pulling a sort of M. Night Shyamalan in the sense that he thinks that his movies are so uplifting to people and all that we need to do to survive one of these outrageous scenarios is just be decent when it's like, that is not how people survive the end of the world. And also, the bit of the Cusack character's book that we do get at the end, it ends with, and then we knew we all had relatives in Wisconsin. What does that even mean? That means absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's a nonsense sentence. I know that I'm missing the context, and ha-ha, Wisconsin is South Pole, but it doesn't make it sound good. It makes it sound like shit. He only sold like 150 copies for a reason. <laughs> and yes, self-published counts. Now he is one of the books that is going to be studied by future children. I hate that. Pure yeah. and simple luck. And the one that's like almost almost destroyed that whole ship that they were on for sneaking in. Yeah. yeah. It's a good thing that you saved everyone's lives, 
because you did cause the thing that was going to drown yeah. them all. I, I would have had all of them arrested because they're responsible for very, very serious damage. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of on the government to, like, what do you expect people to do? But I did to that, that the whole bit, like, there's an obstruction in this in this gear room, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, shit, is it Gordon's body? <laughs> Like, no, Gordon didn't stand a chance. Uh, Those industrial gears, they chewed him up like dog food, my guy. Gordon was done. But I find it funny that that entire time, they're like, what are we floating towards? Mount Everest. Didn't you think that this might happen? You did build them in the Alps. Mm-hmm. Didn't you think that at some point mountains might be an issue well i think that was the plan is that they wanted to be near the highest place on earth just to Mm. be above the water just Mm. in case but like i do think it's interesting you bring up the location there i think it's a little bit interesting the way that this movie sort of i don't know how to put this cuddles up to some contentious countries let's say Mm. That obviously, like, the Russian prime minister is just an all-around good guy, or the Russian president in this one. But then there's the completely unexplained thing that China has apparently taken over Tibet in this film. That Tibet Mm. is under the governance of China, and the Chinese flag is being flown and all of this, like... It's it's interesting, almost like they really wanted a China release, and so they just put this thing in there to get it. I don't know. Mm. It's like there's some interesting sort of stuff that hasn't hasn't aged all that well. No, and I do think that is quite interesting. And the ending. Let's talk about the ending. Apparently, they are going to be docking in Africa. The birthplace and cradle of humanity for the next, I don't know, 2012 years until this shit all happens again. So Africa was fine. Apparently. Because they are so far above sea level. I'm assuming like the coastline still had a bit of a bit of trouble. Yeah, they don't say all of Africa's fine. They say a lot of, I think it's a lot of Southern Africa. Yeah. So they didn't necessarily have to bring giraffes, did they? No, I think they were pretty solid. I think the giraffes would have been fine. Although, that one giraffe who's being carried by the helicopter, he's never seen that shit before. (laughs) That must be exciting. It's like that bit with the cows in Lake Placid. They're like, holy shit, I'm flying, damn. They do avoid something in the final cut that I'm glad they avoid, because there is an alternate ending in which it is revealed that Adrian Helmsley's father has survived. That the cruise ship that he is on has sort of, like lodged on top of an African island? No. Come on. Not where they were sailing. Come on. That tsunami gave that boat the people's elbow. Yeah, and also the last time we saw that boat, it was literally capsizing under a giant tidal wave. Like, just the weight of it. Like, even, like, his father is on the outside. Like, that's a... I really love that sequence. I think that's a really... Like, that's probably the most harrowing scene because it's Mm. the... The smallest, you're really only seeing this small group of people inside the kitchen and then this overwhelming thing bearing down on them. But the way that that scene ends with Helmsley's father sort of stepping out to sort of look up at the wave as it comes over them, the sheer volume of water there is killing him on impact, regardless of what happens to the boat. 
And that's an ice cold way to go. It's the whole thing there, like, it cuts to, like, the interior of the kitchen where everyone is fine. Helmsley's dad is sitting there completely unhurt, and all that's wrong with George Seagal is that his arm is in a sling. That's that's it. They're not being, like, skimmed across the water like a stone from the coast of Japan to a mountain in Africa. Mm. That's not happening. You can slide as many plates as you like, but it's not going to work like that. Look, if you're going to go the distance and have them pop up at the end being okay, Harold Holt may as well be with them. (laughs) Harold Holt was holding up the entire Australian continent. Him, Millie Earhart, H.R. Puff and stuff. They're all on that island. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine how excellent this movie would have been if Puff and stuff was like a mascot on that boat? That's a place where lost things go. I tell you what, Gritty is getting a spot on those arcs today. Absolutely. They're right to cut it. It would have been like a real problem. I actually do... Too, it would be too sappy. Yeah, I actually think that the ending is way too sappy as is. I mean, all of this, yeah. like, optimism, human spirit, love conquers all the stuff I'm sort of like, ugh, about. But that would have been, like, straight up corrosive to the movie around it because mm. I think it would have been like the end of uh, War of the Worlds where Spielberg can't help himself. The the teenager's got to be okay. But even less believable. <laughs> it would have felt cheap. Mm. And I think yeah. it's, it's right to cut it too because we've already we got Return of the King Syndrome with this movie. That there are too many endings. Mm. Mm. I didn't need the gear. I didn't need Gordon going. and I did, Well, I didn't need Gordon going, but I didn't need the gear full stop. I didn't need that problem to solve. Yeah. I mean... It just added too much length to the movie, it really just drags it. Did you recognise Stephen McCaddy, by the way, from last week, Pontypool? He's the captain of the boat. Oh, oh shit! Really? Mm. Huh, about yeah. that. He was pretty decent. Yeah. Small role, but, you know, can't all be big roles. Well, that's the role he normally gets, is that kind of, like, deep in the supporting cast kind of thing, but he's always solid. I do like, it's one of the reasons I'm not that huge a fan of the ending. I do like that there is a little bit of opaque morality here. That even the people that we think of as as the heroes, even the president, he is giving the order to kill these people, to mm. keep the truth from getting out. And Helmsley, whether knowingly or not, is a party to that. I do think one of the most upsetting parts is the guy who actually found... Yeah, his Indian mate. Hmm. The information sent them... They never even sent the evac. Yeah. The guy who saved everyone on those ships before Helmsley just dies. Hmm. I like that. I like that there is that kind of pragmatism and cold-bloodedness. And I Hmm. kind of reject the movie's attempts to tell us that that is wrong. Because it's it's unfortunate, definitely, but it's also, given the scenario, it's entirely understandable why these characters do this, why that's the action Hmm. that these characters take. It's like they make this big thing of, like, I think it's supposed to show that Anheuser are trying to raise the specter of Anheuser trying to, like, seize power for himself, which I don't see in what the character does, but... I think he's panicking. Yeah, the whole thing of, like, leaving the Speaker of the House behind is like, yes, like, he's late, sorry, but we gotta go, because the USSS John F. Kennedy's about to kill everyone. And besides, he was spending 14 times trying to tie yeah. his shoes on the way we out all of the know, house. We all know that Kevin McCarthy is not good at math, so he really yes. miscalculated <laughs> the time it was going to take him to get there. Yeah, and the entire thing, it's like, what were we going to do? Push it back? Mm. I mean, <laughs> the Earth is not going by our timetable. We're going by its timetable. Yeah. In fact, they even have to speed up the clock because of 
the shit does just popping off because shit it, pops yeah, off. Yeah, because Helmsley gets it wrong. I mean, where is that scene? I wanted that scene from Anheuser saying, look, I've not been throwing this at you. I don't blame you. This is an insane situation. But, like, all of this is happening because we were working to your incorrect timetable. Don't come at me for trying to salvage all of this stuff now when you told us we had six more months and that's what yeah. we budgeted for. Mm. Yeah, I don't think Anheuser can really Any, be... Yeah. Anyways, yes. An- Carl Anheuser's secret hero of Roland Emmerich's 2012. Or at least secret sympathetic character. Him, Gordon, and Yuri secretly, secretly the protagonists of this movie. <laughs> I love how Yuri bought all of those cars knowing full well he would only have six more months with them, but he was like, voice control. Hmm. It's voice control. I'm going to enjoy having this money while I can. Do love that moment where Cusack is talking to Yuri and Yuri says, it was $1 billion for each. What would you have done Hmm. if you had the money? Yeah. And it's that moment where it's like, yeah, that's a very good point. But it seems like the movie's trying to say that he's a bad guy? Yeah, it's... Again, it, it falls apart because of, again, the that unabashed optimism about the human spirit, yeah. which I'm sorry if three blokes in their bloody late 20s are a little bit too jaded for you 2012's Roland Emmerich, but we've we've seen how the... Next 10 years have gone, and... We know what the 2012 movie would look like today. Let me read you this this article. This is from 2012. This is a quote from Seth Rogen talking about a meeting between himself, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. George Lucas sits down and seriously proceeds to talk for around 25 minutes about how he thinks the world is going to end in the year 2012, for real. He thinks it. He's going on about the tectonic plates and all the time Spielberg is rolling his eyes like, my nerdy friend won't shut up, I'm sorry. And he was asked about this again years later, or he wrote an essay or something in in a a book that he wrote years later. He was on Conan O'Brien's podcast to promote the book and he, he explained why he thought Lucas was serious. We made a joke. If you've got a spaceship to escape Earth, can we get a seat on that thing? And he was like, no. <laughs> it makes me think that he wasn't joking because if we were joking, you would just say yes. But no, he said no. And to this day, I am confounded and plagued by that story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fair, though. I probably wouldn't take someone I didn't know either. <laughs> just kind of a. I love that that's an example of George Lucas being incredibly mercenary. He can't be mercenary with the script, but he can be mercenary with other people's lives. I love the idea that he was just that sullen and specific when someone was like, do you think Jar Jar's a little bit much? No. (laughs) But is there anything else that you guys would like to add? Uh, Uh, No, I think that's about it. The score's pretty decent. Yeah, I do like the score. I particularly like that track with the cruise ship capsizing. I think that there's a lot of good stuff there. And I think generally they did a very great job with the effects, even though some of the parts have aged. It still has the spectacle. It is still thoroughly entertaining to see these buildings come down. The absolute magnitude of the Yellowstone eruption seen from Charlie's vantage point is gorgeous. Mm. It's beautiful. It's so 
utterly terrifying to imagine standing there. All you would be able to do is weep because of just the enormity. And I think the score helps that quite a bit. The sound design of like buildings coming down and all of that is also brilliant. Well, now why don't we each go around and say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast, Patron Saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> I will start us off and I will say that uh, my MVP for this movie is, is sort of a broad pick. I want to go with the entire special effects crew because... They are the reason this movie works. I mean, we've talked yeah. a lot throughout this podcast about the problems with it as a story, the problems with its scripting, with some of the performances, with the characters. This movie is entirely driven by the work of the visual effects crew, and it is genuinely stunning. It still holds up most of it today, and it is some of the most spectacular. In fact, I would say that it was the most spectacular destruction on screen until Moonfall. Because Moonfall is is this, but somehow even more. Because it's literally the moon falling. Yeah. So yeah, I've got to go with that. I mean, those are the people more than anyone else in the credits who are doing the absolute best work that they are capable of doing. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I think I've got to go to that scene with the cruise ship capsizing. Because not only do I think it is kind of stunning in its visual effects and in that image, but I do think it's actually... Probably the moment in the movie where it, it actually comes closest to in, to triggering an emotional response from me. I think that the way that they structure that whole thing of, you know, that sort of last conversation between Helmsley and his father over the phone, but then the way that everything starts off slowly, you know, things start shaking, the everything starts rolling to one side of the room, everyone starts falling, George Segal goes down, um, we just don't see him again after he loses his grip on the table and falls. And then Helmsley's dad standing sort of facing the wave as it goes up. There's something that's very sort of, for something that is undeniably huge and is literally the premise of the movie Poseidon, like that's a disaster movie in and of itself, yet it feels smaller and more personal and more doom-filled than a lot of the rest of this stuff, that all of that exhibition of the cities collapsing and skyscrapers going down that's all gone and all we're left with is sort of an old man saying goodbye to his son and then watching as this wave crashes down on top of him with i think the best track in the score playing over the top i think that all combines to make it this movie's best and most effective moment certainly it is the moment when i when i've thought about this movie over the years since first seeing it that is the moment i tend to go to in my head but in terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character actor John Lithgow, like I said, I think you could cast him in pretty much any role because it really is up to the actors to bring their own take on these very thinly written characters. But the more I think about it, the more effective I think Lithgow would be in the role of Anheuser because I think he could play that very sort of hard-nosed, pragmatic cutthroat bureaucrat very well but he would also do really a really good job of showing us his point of view of bringing the sort of depth to the character that we do get shades of already with the stuff with his mother i, I think that platt is doing a good job but i think that lithgow could 
do an even better job at showing us that this guy's a human being. I mean, I know, and you guys might have as well walked in thinking, oh, I want John Lithgow to be the president in a disaster movie or something like that. I mean, I did. I was kind of expecting to go that way, but no, I've, I've got to go with Anheuser or Anheuser. I keep, I think I've changed the pronunciation of that name multiple times over over the course of the podcast, but him. For me, MVP has to go to the entire visual effects team. It's truly stunning work. And considering it's a huge part of the film, for it to all stand up today, it is nothing short of miraculous. And the detail too. It's the detail of the destruction that goes far for me. And just the scale of like those big parts of LA just like lifting up and going diagonal and being consumed by the water. Basically Hawaii turned into a giant volcano. And that scene with the Tibetan monk, the Lama, ringing the bell and then being like wiped out by the wave. That's just some brilliant shit. And a lot of that was realized by the effects team. My favorite scene or sequence has to be when uh, George Siegel's character calls his son's home and gets to speak with his granddaughter for the first time. My favorite thing to see in disaster films is the the little moments. The little moments that people spent their entire lives putting off. But now that everything's coming to an end, they take the opportunity, but they're too late. Mm. Because he gets to speak to his granddaughter, but he doesn't get to speak to his son. That moved me more than I anticipated. And plus, it's... I think George Siegel and Blue Mankuma, they just nail it. I just think they have a really good chemistry as performers together. It's two older men confronting the end. And that's always really effective to me. And plus, that whole scene where... Helmsley's father is on the outside of the ship with the tidal wave coming. It's just gorgeous cinematography. I have to credit Emmerich with that at least. He knows how to make a good looking film. Who I would recast with John Lithgow? It's the Oliver Platt role, the Anheuser role. It's because I think he can do the levels. I've seen Oliver Platt in a lot of stuff, and he plays slimy exceptionally well. And I think that kind of colors the performance here. You're not trained to see him as legit by the other roles he's been in. But I think Lithgow comes in with a legitimacy that he can sell you on that more. A lot of the actors are pretty much stranded, so they actually have to just do their own work. Because the script nor Emmerich is really going to help them with that. And John Lithgow is such a talented performer, I think he could nail that. Yeah, for my MVP, it's the special effects people. They did just an outstanding job at putting this film together. All of the standout sequences of the film have been done by them. The amount of scope and detail for the time was brilliant, and there are still moments that hold up incredibly well. Really spoiled for choice at the moment. I mean, take it this with a grain of salt. We are three people who have seen Avatar Way of the Water, which is one of the best-looking movies ever made. So, you know, we're, we're a bit spoiled. But this looked fantastic for its time and still looks pretty good. My favorite scene or sequence has got to be... Probably when Yellowstone goes up. I mean, just the scale of it is incredible. And just seeing the Earth bulge like that is terrifying. Yeah, there's just that horror of like everything that Lawson said about what would happen if Yellowstone did blow just plays on my mind when I see a sequence like that. And I 
think it's just beautifully realized. Could do without them outrunning the pyroclastic surge inside of a bloody RV, but hey, you do what you have to. For who I would get John Lithgow to play, there were kind of a few choices that I would make. Part of me thinks that due to his experience as a recording artist, that he might have been a good pick for one of the two lounge singers, Uh, but part of me really wants him as Charlie, as just this really off-the-wall conspiracy theorist who has gone completely nutty, but is generally correct about things. I feel like that would be a fun energy to see Lithgow in, and we wouldn't get a lot of him, but we would get a good enough amount. It would just be a really fun performance. So now we are going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-2012 podcast. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? Before I reveal my vote, I want to just say that I am really on the borderline here. When I say what I'm saying here, it's going to be very close to of to not being that. Because I see a couple of different ways of looking at this. On the one hand, this is an undeniably bad movie. Like, it is overlong, it has got inconsistently acted, it is written with all of the skill and elegance of a 14-year-old scribbling on the back of a napkin. And it's dumb. It's incredibly dumb. On the other hand, it's so entertaining, and it is exactly the kind of, like, wild junk food that, you know, is really, really enjoyable. And that's why, at the end of the day... I've got to go with Pro. As odd as this might seem, I think that it's a similar way to what John said when we were doing Harry and the Hendersons, even though I was anti that movie because I didn't have much fun with it. But John said that sometimes fun can be the purpose in and of itself, that Mm. the technical flaws of the thing can be overridden by the enjoyment that you get watching it. And I think that that's an argument that I and iffy on a lot of the time. But here I think it works specifically because this is a movie without ideas in its head. This is a movie without any pretensions to being something more than it is. It is a dumb popcorn movie, and it succeeds in being that. And the fact that it is entertaining all the way through for me, the fact that I do have such incredible fun watching it, is all it needs at the end of the day to be a successful version of itself. So I've got to go pro. Congratulations, Harley. We broke him. (laughs) Oh my god. We busted his brain so thoroughly. He's one of us now. 2023 new Lawson drop. Gobble gobble, gobble (laughs) gobble. One of us, one of us. Well, I second a lot of the points that you make. It is ultimately fun. It's dumb. It's supposed to be dumb fun. But I don't quite cross that line. I think the last act still drags. I love all the fun destruction and whatnot, but our premiere Blu-ray line, Lawson, alongside everything else that's there, 2012. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with it. I think, look, we, we have made unusual calls before. I'm not saying we're no stranger to unusual calls, and our list is ultimately Ow, chaotic nice. and inconsistent, <laughs> but I, I cannot join you. I'm not anti- it would have to be the happening for me to be anti. I I did expect this, you know. I expected like I expected Harley to be no, and I I expect John to be with me on this, but we'll see. I'm not anti, but I'm not 
pro, I rest fairly comfortably in the middle. I don't know, disaster movies really aren't my thing, I don't think. I like seeing mass scale destruction, but I like it when I'm watching it. I don't care about it when I'm not, you know? That's just where I'm at, I'm like a, like a magpie. If I see something shiny, I'll go for it, but I'm fine otherwise. There is an open slot for a really dark Dawa disaster movie, like an R-rated, mm. gritty disaster movie that could have an impact that a lot of these don't. Oh, yeah, like one that actually decides to go there. Mm. One that actually decides towards the bleak ending. Well, and, we're, and we're not talking about something like Don't Look Up, which is satire. We're talking just straight-up drama. Yeah, you're going somewhere I can't follow. Lawson, what about you? You mean, Sean, what about John, you? Sean, what about you? Sorry, I got myself confused. Lawson made the crazy decision that's usually <laughs> Sean's job. It is really pretty at points. I have to say, the scope of it is incredible. I'm not denying it's not pretty. The sets are fantastic, particularly when you get onto the arcs, and a lot of the places where they filmed look brilliant. The characters are paper thin, but there are some quite entertaining performances here. Woody Harrelson is one of them. Oliver Platt does a very remarkable job at giving this character depth and pathos that, in the hands of a less skilled actor, it probably wouldn't have. But when they get to the arc, it just drags to a halt. Because it then just starts focusing more on the characters. And I couldn't give... <laughs> A single shit whether Cusack's character lives or dies. In fact, I think it would have worked better for the movie if he died saving his family. That would have worked better. But, you know, I'm not a filmmaker and Roland Emmerich is, so I guess critics are wrong. Uh, <laughs> don't know whether I should disappoint Lawson or disappoint Harley. Well, he needed it unanimous. He's not getting what he yeah, wants anyway. Yeah, it's not going to be pro. I knew that going in. I knew there was no chance to get Harley if, on board here. If the final act was more concise, I would be pro. But it spends too much time with boring characters I don't care about. Do you think if they cut out all of the gear room nonsense, you'd be there? Do you think that would speed it up enough? Or I think so. If, if they had made it that the rotors just weren't powering up in time... And it was just sort of a by-the-grace-of-God miracle that they were able to save themselves from impacting Everest in a more disastrous way. I feel like that would have fit the tone more, particularly because this is like a Noah's Flood kind of situation. It needed a sort of hand-of-God moment, but it makes John Cusack God? To save you of humanity, at least those who are on that yeah. ship. I don't know. It just doesn't go there for me. So high-end ambivalent. So there you have it. We are not a pro-2012 podcast. I think that's the first time in the podcast that I've gone out on a limb by myself in a a pro vote. How does it feel? It's fine. Look, I'm not entirely unsurprised by this. I was not expecting this to to make the cut, but I've got to be honest here. Hey. That's, that's you find what we enjoyment in the things you find enjoyment in, and no one mm-hmm. can take that away from you. Except all those people who took joy away from conspiracy theories. They took joy away from that. It's supposed to be about aliens in hats. 
Yeah. Let's go back to our aliens and hats era. Come yeah. on, what about those little gnome-like aliens? They were cool. Yeah. They would like go up to people and be like, "Get on our ship." It's like, yeah, I'll get on your ship. You're a bunch of elf-looking blokes. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Do the Candy Conduct by joining myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about 2012, both movie and the year? What were you up to 21st of December 2012, when the world was about to end? I was at a funeral. Oh! oh that is why I will <laughs> always remember the, the date of uh, my great-grandmother's funeral is because it was the 21st of December 2012 and Jeez, I had I, I had actually planned for like years to set an alarm on my phone for uh, uh the the particular time when it would when it would click over on the American content to the 21st mm. of December which would have been like the afternoon early when afternoon for us off. I think which is given the mind's location when yeah. things would have popped off I wanted an alarm that would have uh Let's celebrate good times. Come on. And I wasn't able to do it because I was literally in the service for my great-grandmother's funeral. Yeah. Oh, man. Jesus. And it would have been uh, pretty bad if that had gone off. Hmm. I don't know what I was doing, honestly. I think we saw that it was the day when the world was meant to end. I think I missed it. No, no. I think we talked about it not having happened being like, well, that's a disappointment. It was hype for nothing. I mean, come on, if you're going to promise something as gigantic and world-shattering as the bloody end of the world, don't pull a Peter Molyneux on me and <laughs> disappoint me. Do we? To be fair, if you're gonna go, going out like in this movie, that's the way to do it. You can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that on certain podcast apps, when you comment, it's on specific episodes, and on others, it's the show on the whole. But please do like, rate, comment, and subscribe. There are some things I've seen in this machine world that I thought I never would. I've seen the powerful men brought low to live in poverty. I've seen the corrupt brought to account. I had also never anticipated seeing a man get stabbed with a trident for a second time. Hmm. True story, I have seen a man stabbed by a trident. <laughs> I vaguely this, remember this is you true. saying we have. this. Yeah. But to see it the second time in a much more graphic sense was troubling. So, Lawson, what do we have next week? Well, next week, we actually didn't mention how topical this episode was. This is the 10th mm. anniversary that we've just gone past. Maybe we didn't hit it on the dot, but given given that yeah. uh, we are bound by the list and not by, you know, the anniversaries of things, fairly serendipitous. Also yeah. fairly serendipitous, although not as timely as it maybe could have been, is our next week's episode. Everyone is going to see Avatar The Way of the Water at cinemas. I just did see why we were recording. James Cameron saying that they are going to break even in the next couple of days, so that he is definitely going to be making all of, of the sequels. They will. Didn't Disney already basically say, oh yeah, like, Hmm. We're greenlighting them because they will make money, no matter what. Yeah, especially now that all the technology is already developed. Obviously, the more deductive among you may have already realised by that little exchange that we are doing the first Avatar uh, next week. The original 2009 film that uh, is still the highest grossing movie ever made with over $2.9 billion. So if you would like to follow along at home... You can find it available for streaming in Australia 
on Disney Plus, but you can also find it available for purchase on the Fetch, Telstra, YouTube, Amazon, and Apple stores. It appears as if it's not available to rent. I've seen Disney doing some weird things with their, not yeah. Disney Plus, but the online store versions of some of their mm. things is that it feels like they're trying to force people onto Disney Plus. Early in 2022, when Avatar was taken back to cinemas to cross yeah. the line again, they took it off at Disney Plus, yeah. then shelved it back on on the lead up to Avatar 2. According to Just Watch, you can't rent, you can only purchase Snow White and the Seven Dwarves as well. And Pirates of the Caribbean, ditto. It looks like they're just trying to get everyone all of those rentals. You can either buy it and give us the money that way, or you can get Disney Plus. In fact, Grey's Anatomy, I did see the other day, has been removed from digital storefronts entirely. The only way you can access it now is on Disney Plus. Well, that's how the worm turns, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You see, what's funny is that Avatar hasn't been released in 4K. I'm sure they'll get around to that. And to be fair, this next episode is still topical because Way of the Water, still in cinemas. Still number yeah. one at the box office. Apparently, the next one is going to have fire avatars. I think it's called the, they're called the Ash Tribe. I assume they live in like a deserty kind of. Or maybe they live in the remnants of Home Tree. Don't think they evolve like Pokemon. Of course not. I'm not saying that they'll breathe fire. Yep, so join us next week for when we discuss Avatar. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson And I have been and will continue to be Sean Lewis. Seems to me that the worst is over.